Welcome, everyone, to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley, a national news and talk program dedicated to military veterans' issues. And now, your hosts, David Corey and Richard Hurley. Good evening. Welcome to the Veterans News Hour for Monday, April 25th, 2022. This is Air Force veteran David Corey. My co-host Rick Hurley is on vacation this week. We have three major segments in our show this evening. Uh, The first is uh, courtesy of and thanks to the United States Institute of Peace. We have uh, two audio tapes from their Vietnam War Legacy series. And in the second segment, we have another tape from the United States Institute of Peace on the issue of uh, how peace building has changed since uh, 9-11. But in this first segment, uh, this is uh, an issue uh, that illustrates the long-term impact of war on a real personal level. Last year, in 2021, the United States Institute of Peace launched a multi-year project to foster greater dialogue both in and between the United States and Vietnam on war legacy issues and reconciliation. This project stems from the U.S. Congress's 2021 authorization for the U.S. government to assist Vietnam in identifying its missing personnel. Following many decades of Vietnamese cooperation to help the United States conduct the fullest possible accounting of missing U.S. personnel from that war. The remains of U.S. Air Force pilot Richard Kibbe were found after more than 50 years with help from local Vietnamese. In an interview with the United States Institute of Peace, his son tells the story of the healing it has brought to his family. So, Doug, if you'll please roll the first tape. Uh, My father, Richard Kibbe Sr., was... uh you know, he was everything to me. He was the ultimate dad. I used to kid with folks uh, that my mom and dad were June and, and Ward Cleaver. Uh, my father was a pilot in the U.S. Air Force doing rescue helicopters work and had gone over the Ho Chi Minh Trail to pick up a pilot who had been shot down. They were hit by ground fire when it flew into the side of a, a cliff. I remember the day that they came to the door like it was yesterday. Um, there was a doorbell rang, I answered the door, and I saw three military men in there, and uh, I knew immediately it was bad news. That was, a, that was a very difficult time as we were trying to figure out what was happening. In the first few months, there was a lot of hope that uh, something would be found. My father was in the jungle hiding along with his crew. Uh, the months turned into years, and finally we were resolved the fact that he was missing in action. So after about 50 years, uh, a... a uh, team was looking at what they thought was my father's uh, crash site when a villager came up to him with a small box that had dog tags in it and as well as a fragment of bone from uh, ultimately it was uh, Patrick Wood who was the pilot and those dog tags belonged to my father. He led them to the correct uh, crash site where they ultimately discovered the remains of all the air crew. Shortly after the second uh, crew member was found, we got notification that they found my father and uh, I immediately got on the phone and notified all my uncles and my siblings uh, that 
my dad was coming home. It felt like uh, the end of a, a great question mark in our lives, you know. It, it was not something we ever expected. We were shocked when they found the dog tags, but when they actually found remains and were told we're going to bring them home, we were very, very elated and pleased to see the end of that. After they had identified my father, uh, my nephew, who's active duty in the Air Force right now, went to be the official escort, and he got to officially uh, take the casket to the airport and fly back to Washington, D.C., got the full military honors at, uh, at D.C. airport, uh, where the people in the airplane were looking out the windows, and they brought out the casket with a case on and, and a formal... Uh, um, group of people that uh, did the flag, the whole deal, and uh, put him in a, uh, a hearse and took him to Arlington for the ceremony the next day. That was amazing. You see, it was so amazing to see all of that. You, you see that on TV often that, you know, somebody's found or somebody is, uh, is brought in with the full military honors. And to be on the tarmac myself and to watch that was just an amazing event. Being military, I've seen many, many funerals and, and formal uh, ceremonies, but to, to be there and watch that and see uh, the pageantry and the solemnness that, uh, and the honor with which it's done is, was fabulous. The, the recovery has been so healing for my family. It's unbelievable how much. Uh, you would not believe the difference in my uncle how he changed just at the at the uh, funeral that he all of a sudden started talking about my dad and all the things I did, the stories that came out of his mouth that he never would tell before because it hurt too much. Uh, but between my siblings and my uncles, uh, it's been a fantastic uh, experience to uh, learn about everything having to do with his recovery, the people that went out and were sifting through the dirt and the sand, mostly Vietnamese nationals, uh, and the DPAA team that went there and recovered those remains, brought them back, identified them, and uh, ultimately we got the remains uh, moved to Arlington for burial. I think the recovery of people who have been lost in war is important to both countries that are involved. After the conflict is over, there are missing loved ones that need to be accounted for. Families need to know about them and figure out what happened to their loved ones. Uh, the DPAA effort and the uh, Vietnamese national effort to recover U.S. Uh, Americans and as well as uh, local nationals has been instrumental in uh, building a bond between two countries that once weren't getting along very well. The one thing I would like to add to all of this is that I have my heartfelt thank you to the people at DPAA, the people who continually go over to sites uh, worldwide to find loved ones and bring home some news that we found them and, and know where they are and we're going to bring them home to you. And I'd really like to put a uh, special thanks to the Vietnamese people who spend their time and effort uh, to care for our families and bring them home. Thank you um, to uh, Richard Kibbe's and his um, his family for uh, for everything that they were sharing with us and uh, 
our condolences for the suffering that they've been through for all these decades. Uh, I think it is important that people realize, you know, the the effect on individuals and on families uh, of of war. In this second tape, <clears throat> there's um, we will hear from the family of uh, of uh, Navy Commander Paul Charvet in uh, January of this year. The United States Institute of Peace's Vietnam War Legacies and Reconciliation Initiative interviewed the family of Par Chauvet, uh, a U.S. Navy commander who was lost in the war off of Han May Island in northern Vietnam. The Vietnamese team trained by the United States recovered his remains just last year, one of the 729 U.S. servicemen members found and identified through U.S.-Vietnamese cooperation after the war. Now, the interview that you're going to hear is of Paul's sisters. It takes place the day after his remains returned home after being lost for 54 years. So, Doug, if you'll roll this second tape. Well, we grew up in the Yakima Valley. My dad and cousins and uncles, we all raised hops. Although Paul was the oldest, he's a year older than me, and then Donna Ray came along, I think, three years later. I think we just had the best growing up. It was magical. We were so blessed to live like that. Then when he went to Gonzaga, he uh, took ROTC, and afterward, he applied into the Navy and went to Pensacola to start his training to be a pilot. I think he got into the flying uh, with Dad, having been a pilot. And so he would go there and he'd take us up. I think it probably spurred that interest for Paul. And he loved flying. I know that when he finished Pensacola and he then learned to fly this Skyraider AK-1, big single-engine bomber, and he would fly off of uh, the carriers. And he truly did believe in that war. He felt he was called to serve his country. He had been over there. This is his third tour, and this was his last mission. And he was leaving the next day, heading home. He was retiring from the Navy, and they were going to start a family, he and his wife, Chris. He wanted to fly, and his commander says, no, 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 no. This is your last mission. It's not good luck for you to fly. Paul says, oh, no, I love to fly. Just let me do this one more. So he flew, and then his gyro went out. I don't think he could tell if he was up or down. And they were flying through clouds, too. And they looked, and they looked, and they never heard from him. He just disappeared. At that point, Paul was just missing in action. Dad and Mom were waiting to hear from him in the States, saying, I'm here. I'm done. They were waiting for the news, and then a car pulled up, and two men came out of the car. Dad said he knew the minute he saw them. We didn't talk about it at home because Dad didn't want to talk about Paul at all. It was like Paul didn't exist. That was how my father handled his pain. He just couldn't bring it up. So nothing could be talked about as a family. So when they finally said that he's presumed dead and we can now have a funeral, it was a relief. Now we could celebrate his life, having a mass said, prayers saying goodbye to him as a family at the graveside. What I figured was the only closure we were going to get. It felt like closure. It felt like closure before that when you never hear a word. And then um, in the spring, Mom got a letter stating that they were pretty sure they had found remains of an American flyer who had flown over this island and uh, had been shot down. 
And pretty soon I got this notice that said, yeah, we found these remains. They've been sent to Hawaii. They've been verified. Lorraine called me two weeks before Memorial Day. She said, are you sitting down? And then she told me. I mean, we were like both like just speechless. And so then we got into the van that they had for us. And I'm so happy to have Lorraine's family there and my husband there. And pretty soon in came this plane. And oh, gosh, it was so impressive, you know. This is Paul coming in to us to be here. And then they unloaded a Paul from the cargo area. And they had young Navy cadets pick up the casket and brought it over to the hearse and put it in. It's like, oh, my gosh, Paul, you finally made it home. And now, you know, he's back part of the family. And it's glorious to have that. I just, I thought, well, I have to get closer. I have to feel him. And so that's when I asked the the funeral person if I could. And he let me, because I could really feel him. I think the big word is closure and that finally we'll have a place for Paul. You know, not somewhere vague where we don't know that island, but now we can, you know, we have a place where the family can go. That's closure for all the cousins and have him at rest, finally. Okay, so here we were, arch, arch enemies, right? That we can go beyond that and work together. How wonderful for the Vietnamese, because from what I'm gathering, they're the ones who gathered this uh, the remains of Paul and sent them. They're getting their fallen soldiers, and they're going through these same feelings that we're going through, that Lorraine and I are going through, the welcoming them home years later. We're all one family on this earth. If we can heal from the hatred of that war and the ugliness of that war, we can come above anything, really. Well, thank you um, to the family and sisters of Paul Charvet um, for uh, sharing their their uh, experiences and their thoughts and their remembrances with us. I think it's important that uh, the people realize, you know, we, how many wars have we been through in the last 50 years, and yet, um, you know, the impact of war really never, never ends. <clears throat> I'd like to thank U.S. Institute of Peace for both of those. For those of you not, uh, both, both of those tapes, for those of you not familiar with the U.S. Institute of Peace, it's a national nonpartisan independent institute founded by U.S. Congress in 1984 during the Reagan administration. It's dedicated to the idea that a world without conflict, without violent conflict, is possible, uh, that it's practical, and it's essential for United States and global security. Uh, it works... Um, various places around the country, around the world, uh, to try to prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict. It's a rather small organization funded by Congress. Its um, 2021 budget from Congress was only $45 million, um, compared to, for instance, the Defense Department budget of over $700 billion, uh, significant difference, which which reflects the sad disparity, I think, in uh, U.S. government's view on peace building uh, versus, um, you know, the use of the necessary use of military force in some situations, but uh, the unfortunate lack of prioritization of 
of peace building. Which brings us to the second segment we have this evening. This is also courtesy of the U.S. Institute of Peace. It's a 33-minute tape entitled 20 Years After 9-11, How Peace Building Has Changed. Uh, we are joined in this discussion with the USIP board chair and former National Security Advisor Stephen J. Hadley, also the U.S. Institute of Peace Vice Chair, uh, Ambassador George Moose, and the USIP President and CEO, Lise Grande, as they discuss how the field of peace building has changed in the last 20 years and how it should evolve, in their view, to meet the challenges that will define the next two decades. So, Doug, if you'll roll the third tape. Good afternoon. I'm Lise Grande, and I'm the President and CEO of the United States Institute for Peace. We're very pleased to welcome everyone to a very special discussion today. In recognition of 9-11, we're honored to have the chair of the U.S. Institute Board of Directors, Steve Hadley, and the vice chair, Ambassador George Moose, join us for a conversation and discussion about the implications of 9-11, the impact of the events of that day on the field of peace building. As many of us around the world reflect 20 years after 9-11 on what that event did to the work that we do in foreign policy and security policy and the work that we do inside the United States to protect ourselves from violent extremism, we wanted to take the opportunity to reflect on what 9-11 means for the work that we do in this institute. During the next 30 minutes, we'll be reflecting together on a number of key questions. The first, and Steve, I'd like to direct this to you first and then to Ambassador Moose. I'd like to ask you how you see the events of 9-11 changing the way that we try to promote peace around the world. Well, thanks, Lise, and it's great to be uh, on this panel with you and with George. I think, uh, 9-11 in some sense really put us in the business of addressing the problem of fragile states. And it did so in the following way. After 9-11, the Bush administration, of which I was a part, uh, went to the Taliban, which then were in power in Afghanistan, and said, turn over bin Laden, shut down the training camps, and exclude the al-Qaeda fighters, and we'll leave you alone and the Taliban declined. And so we went in, we, did, we overturned the regime with, by supporting Afghans as they rose up against the Taliban regime uh, and excluded Al-Qaeda and denied them the safe haven of Afghanistan from which they planned the attacks of 9-11. But then the question became, well, what do you do now? Because after the expulsion of the Soviets two decades before, the United States and the international community walked away from Afghanistan. And what followed was civil war, Taliban rule, uh, safe haven for al-Qaeda, and 9-11. And we did not want to repeat that history. So the question was, uh, can we take uh, and build a government in Afghanistan, which will not only provide for the Afghan people, but ensure that Afghanistan is never again a base from which terrorists can mount operations against the region and against the United States. And that got us in the business of how do you take a fragile state and give it uh, and help it to establish that kind of governance that can provide for its people. And it got us into how do you develop security infrastructure? 
how do you get economic development going, and how you, do you develop inclusive governance. And as we started that process in Afghanistan, we began to then look around the world and found other fragile states that were not only the sources of poverty and migration, but were also training grounds or uh, areas where terrorists could take root. And that really put us as a country and USIP in the business of fragile states. How do you address the underlying causes of terrorism, the underlying causes of conflict, and that gets you into the business of looking at security, economic development, and governance. So in that sense, 9-11 had a profound effect on how we saw the problem of conflict and what we needed to do in order to address it. George, how do you see the impact of 9-11 on the field of peace building? Well, thanks, Lise. And I see it very much in the same way that Steve has just described it. You know, when we go back um, and we look at the, uh, the, the report of the 9-11 Commission, that report had three overarching themes. The first is, obviously, in light of what happened that event on 9-11, we needed to take the fight to the terrorists where they were. We couldn't sit comfortably at home and just uh, wait for it to come to us, because it didn't. The second was that we needed to reform our own institutions, our intelligence institutions, our law enforcement, even our military, and our diplomacy, so that we would be better equipped to protect ourselves against these kinds of threats. But the third part of that paradigm was that we needed to get smarter about understanding what it was that created these grievances out of which grew extremism and violent extremism, which was aimed against us. And it's not as though we didn't know these things existed. I mean, the, we had in any number of precursors to 9-11, including the bombings of the embassies in, in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam. So it was there. It was with us. But it was only after 9-11 that we began to focus seriously on what was driving uh, these violent extremist expressions that came to hit us and to haunt us on 9-11. And that is where the work of the U.S. Institute of Peace, I think, really has been focused now over the last 20 years. And that work, I think, we got revitalized most recently in 2019 when the Institute was sponsored this congressionally mandated study group on fragility and extremism, recognizing there was a direct connection between fragile states, as Steve has described them, and these places which are challenged in terms of their governance, and the opportunities, opportunities for extremists to exploit those weaknesses mm -hmm. to establish themselves and to create opportunities to launch against us. So that, that very much, I think, has informed, frankly, the core of USIP's work for the last 20 years. Um, Stephen George, you both have talked about um, extremism. And the fact that after 9-11, this became one of the key planks of peacebuilding work. We knew that if we were going to promote peace, if we were going to prevent conflicts, and if we were going to reduce violence, we had to address this directly. As we think forward, what are the top concerns now that we have in addressing violent extremism? Have we done a good enough job? Are there things that we should be doing in addition to what we're doing or things that we should be doing differently? George? Well, let me start off there because I, I do think, uh, just as I mentioned, that the the working group, the study group on violence, uh, on um, violent extremism and fragility, 
gave renewed emphasis to that element of the original 9-11 Commission report, which I think has been underappreciated and which we have not acted on sufficiently. That is understanding better what the forces and the factors are that drive uh, this kind of uh, extremist ideologies and their uh, their ability to um, get a foothold in so many parts of the world. Um, and so we we have we still have catch up work to do in that regard. Mm-hmm. We 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 are not, in my view, devoting enough attention to even tracking where this extremist ideologies and ideas are implanting themselves. For example, we we know the area that I'm most familiar with, of course, is Africa. And we've been tracking now for some years the spread across the Sahel Mm -hmm. uh, of Africa. But only recently did we we wake up to the fact that in northern Mozambique, an offshoot of of, uh, an extremist group that's been based in Somalia has entrenched itself there and has caused enormous, caused enormous dislocation and violence and extremism. So we are still playing catch up here. Um, And we still are not, in my estimation, devoting either enough attention to how we uh, how we anticipate the ways in which these ideologies can exploit weaknesses and fragility, or in devoting the resources that we can and should be devoting to countering those. And, and here again, the, the, some of the, the the things that USIP has done over the last several years, I think are are the kinds of activities and programs that can be and ought to be scaled up in order to deal with this threat. Steve, what's your view on this? I agree very much with what George said. Uh, He referred to this study group, congressionally mandated study group, following on the 9-11 Commission report. It was co-chaired by the co-chairs of the 9-11 Commission report, Lee Hamilton and Tom Kane. And they basically said the ball that got dropped after the 9-11 Commission report was this notion of prevention. Mm -hmm. And I would point out, I was, you know, we've all been tuning into a lot of Zooms and podcasts and all the rest on the lessons of 9-11. I was struck by Lieutenant General Michael Nagata, who happens to be on the military advisory group of USIP, a retired general. And he made the point that whether we've learned the same lesson abroad (laughs) that we're going to learn at home. That is to say that you can't kill your way. You can't to 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 um, stability and peace. You can't simply kill terrorism, uh, terrorists and think you've addressed the problem of extremism. And he went further and said, as we focus on extremism at home in terms of white supremacists and groups on the left, he made the similar point that you can't indict and incarcerate people and think you're going to create enduring civil peace. You need this effort towards prevention which really has uh, many parts, but I think the three that are underappreciated and underaddressed are the grievances, as George mentioned. Uh, We've got, whether it's abroad or at home, you need to find a way to address these grievances uh, that fuel uh, and are used and manipulated by extremists and terrorists. Secondly, the governance challenge and the challenge of corruption We have not figured out how to help countries uh, address those issues and establish inclusive, enduring governance that is not corrupt, that delivers for its people and 
commands legitimacy. One of the things that uh, 2019 study group found in terms of prevention, and we've, we've learned this over and over again, the number one problem in fragile states is governance. Yep. In governance that is not legitimate, that is, that is corrupt, and that uh, takes advantage of the people rather than serving the needs of the people. And we haven't solved that problem. And the third one is the messaging and the propaganda and the use by extremists of media to inspire and encourage terrorism. And, you know, we've been working at this for 20 years, and I still think we're, we're not much closer to the solution than we have been before. So there's a huge amount of work. And I guess the last thing I would say, Lise, is these require more attention. They are largely non-military mm -hmm. uh, skills that are required, and we, they require greater investment. Yeah. We've invested in our military over the last three decades. We have the best military in the world. We have not invested in these tools that we need to address governance and messaging and grievances that are going to be key if we can discourage and prevent extremism and and finally deal with this problem of, of terrorism. Yeah, after 9-11, the United States engaged militarily in Afghanistan and then engaged militarily in Iraq. The military engagements were, of course, backed by our diplomatic efforts, our efforts on the humanitarian front, the human rights front, and on the development front. Now that the United States is withdrawing militarily from Iraq, and very recently from Afghanistan, we'd be very interested, gentlemen, in your views on what can be done to protect the gains that have been made. There were things that were done in Afghanistan and Iraq that were hugely important. And even if we're withdrawing militarily, what can we do to preserve those gains? Steve? Well, there, you're right, Lise, to point out uh, and it's difficult to remember in the sort of onslaught of commentary we're in the middle of in this 20th anniversary of 9-11 about mistakes in the war on terror, mistakes in Iraq, mistakes in Afghanistan. Uh, we're rich in self-criticism, and that's a good thing. I think we're a little bit lacking in the appreciation of what was accomplished. And I just, if I could say a word, in terms of our military men and women in uniform, who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, who've been part of this war on terror, they should hold their heads up high. They accomplished what we needed them to do, which was to ensure that there would not be another terrorist attack, uh, mass casualty terrorist attack on the United States. People forget that after 9-11, and I was there, and I got the intelligence reports, and what the CIA told us was this was going to be the first of a series of mass casualty attacks, some of which would involve weapons of mass destruction. And people forget that within a month of 9-11, envelopes with white powder that turned out to be anthrax showed up in the U.S. Capitol and at headquarters of major media outlets and killed some of our people protecting the Capitol on Capitol Hill. And we had no idea what was the source of that attack, and it thought it might be actually an al-Qaeda attack. It turned out it was not so. But people forget that uh, what was anticipated was this was the first of a wave of mass casualty attacks. And if you had told us that for 20 years 
there would not be a, another mass casualty tax in the United States. We would say you were smoking the drapes, as they say. But because of the efforts of our men and women in uniform, our intelligence officials, our diplomats, because of the things we did that George talked about to take the fight abroad and to improve our institutions at home, that did not happen. And our men and women in uniform who, and our diplomats and our intelligence officials who served in this fight for the last 20 years have a lot to be proud of. We also have a lot to be proud of in terms of the opportunity we gave to the people of Iraq and Afghanistan to try to build a more inclusive society that respects human rights, women's rights, gives opportunities for their youth. And a lot of that, sadly, is now at risk in Afghanistan. I think what that means for us as the USIP is uh, we have to remind uh, our, the federal government that as the Biden administration uh, focuses increasingly on the problems of China and great power com competition, we continue to have interests in the Middle East. And I think we, the USIP, need to continue to be focused there. Uh, we, I think, need to maintain our commitment to Afghanistan, to those people who stood with us in Afghanistan to try to build a brighter future for their country. And we have to recognize that we don't confront uh, China just off the coast of China in Asia. But China is a global power, and we need to deal with it um, globally. And as uh, USIP knows, China is a key actor in many of the conflicts that are uh, a problem in fragile states and beyond. So um, we, we, I think, need to be committed to Afghanistan. We need to stay engaged. We have to recognize, though, that the context is changed. Uh, and we're going to have to figure out new ways of engagement. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to have to get take a steer in part from where our U.S. government, where our allies are, because we will be more effective if we can be in support of and consistent with U.S. policies than if we go it alone. What that actually looks like, I think we don't know and can't know at this time. And one of the challenges for our wonderful staff at USIP will to be figure out how do we get the job done? How do we continue this work mm -hmm. in support of the people of Afghanistan, even in this change context? I think that's the challenge we have before us. George? No, I don't know that I have much to add to what Steve has already said, except to re reiterate and reaffirm the commitment we have to engaging we, over the course of the last 20 years, we have created an enormous networks of civil society organizations, religious groups, women, youth, et cetera, all across Afghanistan. And those groups have been key to bringing the benefits of good governance to communities in Afghanistan. We, we have a commitment to them to continue to support that work in whatever ways we can. And as Steve points out, this is early days. We don't know what that environment is going to allow us and enable us to do. But I, I'm encouraged by a couple of things. I'm encouraged by the fact that some of our partners have already committed to remaining there. Search for Common Ground, for example, where I served on the board and which is one of our key partners in peace building, has already announced that it intends to try to maintain its staff there. We know, of course, Lee's, that a lot of the folks of the UN has committed to staying there. And we also know that our own government has leverage 
that it can use to try to help preserve the spaces that have been created for civil society and for organizations that we have been partnered with. And so I, I'm, I, I know that you are already, even, even as we are still talking about getting the remaining staff out of Afghanistan, we are already thinking about what does that future look like? In what ways can we continue to be present yeah, or it, it, it to be at least have a presence in terms of our influence in ways that continue to support these efforts on the part of the, the partners that we've supported over these many years. And I certainly I know that our board is going to be fully supportive of those efforts. And to recognize that we have a moral, shared moral responsibility Absolutely. to stay in Iraq and to Absolutely. stay in Afghanistan and to continue to promote peace building as one of core American values and activities in both of these countries. Gentlemen, I'd like Please, to- Could I just say one thing before we leave this topic? I, I think it, it needs to be said that the effort that you have led within mm-hmm. USIP with the full support of the staff and folks that have been working this issue 24 yeah. seven to get our staff and their dependents who were staffing our office in Kabul out of Afghanistan into safe locations has been a unbelievable effort um, against all odds and with a success that I think is greater than almost any organization that I'm aware of. There are a lot of organizations that still have a lot of people in Afghanistan and at this point still have no way to get them out. And that does not include us. And I just want to pay tribute to you and to all those members of the USIP staff who participated in that overwhelmingly successful effort, and not just to get our people, uh, our staff folks and their dependents out, but we got over 100 American citizens out. We facilitated over 1,000 other people getting out of this country uh, who were in harm's way with this new regime. And it was an overwhelming effort. And I think the importance of it is that we USIP have kept faith with those staff members who put their faith in us and who staffed our office in Kabul. And I think that's enormously important. And I think uh, the USIP staff who participated after they get a a couple days of good nights sleep (laughs) ought to take enormous satisfaction in what they accomplished. You know, I've Yep. I was eight years as Deputy National Security Advisor, National Security Advisor. I saw a lot of emergency operations. Mm-hmm. I didn't see anything that was as uh, effective as this. So mm-hmm. kudos to you and kudos to the staff. Gentlemen, and thank kudos you. kudos for keeping faith with our folks. One okay. of the things, I, I think all of us in USIP are grateful for that recognition and recognize that it was our responsibility to keep faith with our partners, to keep faith with our staff and with their families. One of the things that was so striking about the, the period of the evacuation is the collaboration across all aisles and all parts of the U.S. government and administration and our partners. You know, there were times every single day when we were talking to every single branch of the U.S. administration, to countless representatives from Congress and from senators and countless partners. And it didn't matter what side of the aisle we were on. It was truly a nonpartisan joint effort to do what needed to be done to do the right thing. That's the way we should be doing things. Gentlemen, I'd, I'd like to take us into something that we've, you've both alluded to at earlier times in today's conversation, and that is about, in the last 20 years, the exponential growth of technology and how that has added 
to drivers of conflict. Steve, you spoke about this and George, you touched on it. And what I would be interested in is not only how social media contributes and new technologies to the drivers of conflict, but your thoughts on how those new technologies can be harnessed for what we want to do, which is to reduce violence, prevent conflict, and resolve wars when they do occur. Steve, your thoughts on that? So uh, I was in the administration at the dawn of, of, of this, this technological revolution, and I must say I was very bullish about it. I thought that it was going to empower individuals to advance the cause of freedom, human rights, rule of law, and their own their own empowerment, uh, and and uh, be a very democratizing force. Um, as we learned in in our efforts to advance freedom and democracy in the world, uh, the empires tend to strike back and strike back hard. And what I did not anticipate was how authoritarian regimes would skillfully use these tools in order to increase social control. And you see this in China today, especially yep. in, 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 in big ways. I remember I brought in a, thump, a group of, when I was national security advisor, some uh, uh, high-tech folks, all young, none of them in coat and ties, into the Roosevelt Room of the West Wing. And I said to them, I gave them a, in advance a DVD of the propaganda that uh, that terrorist groups were using uh, in order to recruit and train and all the rest. And I said, if this, if you were where, sat where I sat and this was what you were seeing, what would you do to counter it? And we got some good ideas and they became an advisory board to the State Department. But the truth is we have not solved this problem. And, you know, in a summary fashion, the bad guys have been ahead of us in exploiting this technology. I think the authoritarian regimes have been ahead of us in exploiting the technology, and we're behind. And uh, it's going to have to re require people who are younger and more, more technology proficient than me to figure that out. But it is a number one task, and we're not, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. George? Well, again, I don't know that much I can add, but, you know, we have seen throughout history how technological advancements can be used to serve either good or ill. Um, and this is another instance. And, and we've also seen that so often it's the bad guys who are most skillful in exploiting those new technologies and, and, and how it applies. So in this case, we have the bad guys on both extremes, those who would wish to reinforce authoritarian governance, if you can call it governance, um, at, at, at one end of that spectrum. And at the other end of that spectrum, we have these um, non-governmental armed actors who are also seeking to exploit and successfully seeking to exploit those technologies and the platforms that social media platforms that are built on them uh, to advance their causes whatever they may be. Um, and, and we have also, we've known, as Steve has said, that there is in these technologies the potential mm -hmm. to empower people, to make societies more equal and more democratic, to add transparency. For example, I know how we at USIP and other organizations have used um, these technologies in order to make elections more transparent. And in so doing, make the results of those elections more credible 
and to reduce violence in the course of elections, because so often that violence arises from misinformation or disinformation. We've seen how that is possible. We have seen in societies how that technology can be used to create greater transparency into government, be government behavior and government action. You're talking about how do you get at this challenge of corruption? Well, one of the ways you get at the challenge of corruption is to shed more light on what it is that governments are doing and in what ways they are or are not benefiting their citizens from all that. So all that potential is there. Unfortunately, you know, the, the bad guys are not hampered by parliamentary uh, um, procedures or bureaucratic processes or legal niceties or ethical niceties as they pursue these. And so we're gonna have to learn how to, to be much more agile and much smarter about how we deploy this. And let me go back to where I started. We're also going to need to invest more in these technologies mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the ways in which they can be used if we are to be successful in countering the ways in which the bad guys are using them now. Gentlemen, we're at, nearly at the end of our discussion, and we have just one final question we'd like your reflections on. You know, as we look forward, we've come 20 years from 9-11. If we look at the next 20 years, what are going to be the main peace building challenges on the horizon? George, if we can start with you. Oh my gosh, I, I don't have a really great crystal ball, but I have to say, I mean, for as far as I can see, the challenges of the next 20 years are already with us. We can already see them. If you look at the, the latest uh, report of the National Intelligence Council on uh, Global Trends 2040, it lays out things that are already evident to us. Now, there may be those uh, you know, black swans and unknown things out there that, that will come, come to haunt us. But at the moment, if, you, if we look ahead, we already see how, uh, returning to the theme of fragility, how these trends are already impacting um, already weak and stressed governance systems. The continent that I know the best, of course, is Africa. And you look at the challenges that these weak governance st structures, institutions are facing. And now they're being hit with yet a new wave that consists of, well, let's start with a global pandemic right. that is greatly weakening their capacities and challenging their ability to respond to the needs of their citizens. We know that they're facing the, the, the enormous challenge of climate change and how climate change is fueling controversies and conflicts and tensions within their society, and how those tensions are in turn being exploited by extremist groups who see opportunities here to advance their own agendas. And then we add to that, going to, to Steve's point, this challenge of, uh, of an, 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 a global environment in which we see increasing contention, mm -hmm. not only between big powers, but also between middle powers that are coming into this space and creating yet other new challenges for weak and stressed governments. So we already know what that looks like, and which only therefore enhances and increases the importance of how we try to not wait for those things to happen, but to try to find ways to, to get ahead of them, to try to find ways to make societies and communities and governments and regions more resilient to the challenges and the threats that we know that they are already facing. Steve? One last word. I agree with everything George said. I think he said it beautifully. I would just add one problem that we've been struggling with for the last 20 years and we will struggle with for the next 20 years, which is corruption and governance. And the one thing I would leave you with, we don't have the right tools, we don't have the right strategy, but I think it is also fair to say 
we can't do those things for the people in fragile states. They're going to have to build these institutions for themselves. And it means one of the things we need to focus on is who are the available partners. And if you think about the experience in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Colombia, uh, David Ignatius had an article talked about how we didn't really have a partner in Afghanistan committed to the kind of good governance and anti-corruption that we needed. We may have that and now in Iraq in the form of the uh, regime of Mustafa al-Qadimi. We certainly had that in terms of Alvaro Uribe in Colombia. Uh, and the Colombian people who really took the lead in the fight against terrorists and building more democratic, inclusive institutions. So I think one of the things we have to recognize in our work is we can't do it for people. We can help people do it for themselves. But we have to have a local partner committed to good governance and anti-corruption or we're not going to succeed. Gentlemen, I'd like to thank you for joining us for a very personal an important reflection on how the events of 9-11 impacted the work that we do in the U.S. Institute of Peace and in the field of peace building more generally. Steve Hadley is the chair of our board. Thank you. Ambassador Moose as the vice chair. Thank you. I'd like to, in conclusion, recognize that the U.S. Institute of Peace has an exceptional staff of more than 400 people. We benefit from an exceptional board, co-led by Steve and by Ambassador Moose. We have an international advisory council made up of distinguished people from the diplomatic, academic, and private sector who guide us and support us in the work we do. We have an exceptional senior military advisory group made up of generals, admirals, other leading members of our armed forces which advise us. We benefit from all of that. In conclusion, we would like to take this moment to honor the exceptional staff who have worked for the United States Institute of Peace in Afghanistan. We have 49 staff members for years. They have been committed to progressing peace and reconciliation in their country. We honor them and everything they have done to contribute to that great cause. Thank you for joining us today for this special conversation. We look forward to the next one. I'd like to add my thanks to the United States Institute of Peace, uh, to CEO Lise Grande, to um, national former National Security Advisor and now USIP Board Chair Stephen J. Hadley, and USIP Vice Chair and Ambassador George Moose for sharing their insights. Uh, go to the, their website, which is usip.org, to find out more about the United States Institute of Peace. If you're in Washington, it's located on the far northwest corner of the mall at 2301 Constitution Avenue Northwest, Washington, D.C. Again, their website is usip.org. I think um, one thing that was consistent in, in their advice was that we need to invest more resources. And I think, as I mentioned in the introduction, it's, it's sort of a sad reflection. The USIP, which is funded solely by U.S. Congress, and it's, it's even though it's, uh, it's a nonpartisan uh, independent institute is not technically a U.S. agency, but it's Congress has restricted its funding to congressional appropriations. Only $45 million uh, was its budget last year. And to put that in perspective, comparing that to the Defense Department's budget of well over $700 billion a year, I, when I spoke with uh, Harvard professor Linda Bilmes uh, a few years ago for a documentary I was involved in, 
she gave us the comparison between a million dollars, a billion dollars, and a trillion dollars. The words all rhyme, so people really don't appreciate the difference. But if you had a stack of $1,000 bills, I think most people have never even seen a $1,000 bill, but if you if you had a stack of $1,000 bills, $1 million would be about three to four inches high of $1,000 bills. Compare that to a stack of $1,000 bills to constitute a billion dollars. That would be in the neighborhood of about 300 feet, not quite the size of the Washington Monument. But a trillion dollars, by comparison, would be a stack of $1,000 bills that was 63 miles high going up into space. That's the difference. So while the words may sound similar, uh, there's the order of magnitude is, is really boggling. So if you think... You know, $45 million may sound like a knot, but it's really peanuts. And as Lise Grande, who is the CEO of USIP, said, they have a staff of 400 people. 400 people. You know, the Defense Department has millions of people between uniformed and, and civilian employees, active and guard and reserve, etc. It's not surprising that you hear people say, we need to invest more resources in developing our skills on how to prevent and mitigate and resolve a violent conflict. Conflict may be inevitable, but it's the violent conflict that is, is so damaging, uh, destructive to people and to societies. All right, we're about out of time here. Uh, I have news that I, I won't have time to go over, but I'll cover that next week, more news from the Department of Veteran Affairs. But I will go to our closing tonight. As we mentioned every week, uh, the VA has a great program called Coaching into Care to help veterans that are having difficulty transitioning to home life. The Coaching into Care offers free coaching to help you help your veteran. Toll-free number 1-888-823-7458. Its hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Again, Coaching into Care, an important VA program, is toll-free 1-888-823-7458. The VA also has a 24-7 crisis line. The Veterans Crisis Line is 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Well, it's time to go. Hope you enjoyed uh, this evening's show. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank our producer at BBS Radio, Mr. Doug Newsom, and hope you'll tune in next week, same time and station, 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 p.m. Mountain, 4 p.m. Pacific, here on bbsradio.com, Station 1. Until then, have a safe, safe week. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley. We hope you found this week's program very informative. Be sure to invite your friends and all the veterans you know to tune in next week when we'll have another great show on veterans issues. Meanwhile, you can listen to our other recorded episodes on the Veterans News Hour webpage on bbsradio.com. Thanks again for listening to the Veterans News Hour.